0: Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which is a friendly and inclusive community. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This week, I'm really happy to get to talk to Julie Norman Jenkins. Julie owns and captains Fur Fun Flyball, based in Central North Carolina. Fur Fun's accomplishments include being 20-time regional champions. And then they have a host of more selective championships, which I'm not going to list all out for you, but it culminates in becoming the 2019 FCI World Cup champions. They are also the current FCI world record holders. And those are some fast dogs. Julie doesn't only run her dogs in flyball; She also breeds them herself and her lucky friends and family get to have her puppies as fantastic pets and also as sport dogs, not just in flyball. She breeds both Border Collies and Border Collie mixes out of Quicksilver dogs. Julie was kind enough to talk to me about her breeding program and I hope you'll learn as much from this episode as I did. So hi, Julie. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really hey. excited
1: to have you. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for asking me.
0: So I figured where we should get started is the most important question, which is what dogs do you live with currently? What are you (laughs) doing with
1: them? Who are they? Um, Let's see. Currently my husband and I, uh, we own 14 dogs. Uh, One of them is uh, currently on sort of an extended holiday with his flyball best friends. Uh, So we have 13 in the house. Our youngest are two uh, young Border Collies, Cherry Bomb and Tart. They are, uh, almost 10 months old and we have a year old Whippet named Needle. Um, Oh my gosh, really? You want me to go through them all? (laughs) I didn't realize there were 13, so maybe we don't need to go all 13.
0: Although I will those are fabulous names. I love those names you want to give us an overview, like a highlight? Maybe who are the ones that you're really doing sports with right well, now?
1: Well, I'll tell you. I'll just tell, I'll go by um, what we have sort of breed-wise. So we've got the um, two baby Border Collies. We have their mother, Chatty. I have another Border Collie, Glee. And our oldest Border Collie is Dexter. Um, and then we have some small mixes. We have one little mix who's from the shelter. We don't know what she is. She kind of looks like a small Border staffy. Her name is Toast. Um, and then we have two Border Jacks. We have Alphaba and Visa, and we have a Border Border named Tuppence. We also have a Border Whippet Homestar and a mostly Border Collie Quarter Whippet named Hashtag. And I think that's everybody.
0: I'm definitely going to be asking you to name my next dog for me, I think. (laughs) That's my plan.
1: Oh, I forgot Pac-Man. I forgot Pac-Man. Sorry, you're right. Yeah. Pac-Man's a mix of mixes. That's awesome.
0: So, what do you? What kinds of stuff do you do with them? I hear you do a little bit of fly ball sometimes.
1: I do a little fly ball now and then. Uh, right now, we're not really doing a whole lot of anything. Uh, but when we do things. Uh, flyball is our sport. That's our main competition venue. We play with Fur Fun out of North Carolina in NAFA region nine. Um, we love wearing pink. We love playing flyball. Um, I also teach agility and I, I love training the skills to my dogs. Uh, we also do a little bit of disc dog. We host up dog competitions and I really enjoy that venue. I wouldn't say that I'm particularly competitive in it, but um I like I like teaching my dogs how to do it so that I can help other people with their dogs as well. And you've been in dogs, what, for like two or three years then? Something like that? Um, That's a joke. I was born into dogs. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I'm the only child, but I don't really consider myself an only child because I had so many dog siblings growing up. Um, my mom is Deb Norman, and she is a sort of my co-breeder here at Quicksilver. She also breeds Quicksilver dogs. Um, and uh, I was born into dogs, and I, I sort of never looked back. And I, I learned later in life that there were children of dog people that didn't want to do dog things, Weird. And I didn't, I didn't understand it at all, but I no. hear that those people exist. So that's, I'm not one that's of them. That's
0: strange. No, just, I, you know, genetics controls some stuff, I guess. I guess. So, so I'm told. So, uh, <laughs> and so you breed some stuff. So what
1: are you breeding? I breed Border Collies and Border Collie mixes. Um, border Collies are definitely where my heart lies. Uh, my first Border Collie was Sprint, uh, who I got when I was 15 and she changed my life. Um and She was the dam of our first three litters as Quicksilver Border Collies. Um, and then her, um, her offspring have helped us continue that line. Um, so I, I still breed Border Collies because I love them. And because in order to have good mixes, I believe you need to have good Border Collies. Um, I think that that's sort of what makes a that what what sort of makes my long term vision as a breeder sustainable is always having a supply of really nice border collies. Um, I also breed mixes, particularly small mixes. Um, there's a there's a there's a hole in dogs of a, a type of work that we want them to do, which is being a flyball height dog, um, where there really is not a pure breed that can consistently meet the Expectations that we have, and there are mixes that consistently can. And so, you so should probably explain what a flyball height dog is, because there may be some people. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it's just it's talking about the size of the dog and the jump height that it sets. So it's not only flyball height dogs, but also small dogs in dog agility, where they're although it's less of a about breed there, and that's in an, the that's another conversation that we'll get to in a minute. Um, but as far as fly ball goes, dogs that are a certain size and can set the jumps at a certain height and then run as fast as the big dogs run. Um, uh, which, uh, you know, depending on your big dogs um, and your small dogs, but, uh, and my understanding is that you
0: want a small dog on your flyball team because that keeps the jump height low for everybody, is that right?
1: Yeah, the, a flyball team jumps the height of the smallest dog. Um, the smallest dog sets the jump height for everybody on that four-dog lineup, and so um, most competitive lineups are comprised of one dog that sets the jump height and then three dogs that are big, that don't have to worry about the jump height. Um, there's arguments about what the ideal height is. Um, in flyball, depending on your organization, there's you can be jumping, the maximum is usually around 14, at the minimum in UFLY is six, and in NAFA is seven. Um, you know, they're the the of course a 14-inch jump is not a particularly high jump, but in flyball, it's um it's not just the height, but it's how many times they have to do it and the speed that we're asking them to do it at. So there definitely is sort of an optimal jump height where the the dog who sets the height it is powerful enough that they can run really fast, but they're still small enough that they're setting a jump height where the larger dogs can run their best times.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And so now I hope I didn't derail you from, so you were talking about that there's a hole for-
1: So that, uh, you know, in my experience, my, and with my own flyball team, we have, our, our big dogs have done their best, have run their best times when they're jumping eight, nine inches. Um, and so that's about the size of, of, of jumps that I want to be jumping for NASA. That means a dog that is, um, you know, around 14 or 15 inches tall uh, at the withers. Um, when we look at, and we're looking for a dog that can be able to run under four seconds, complete the five ball course in under four seconds. To me, that's a competitive height dog. If I can have a dog that can jump eight or nine and run under four, I'm pretty thrilled about that. Um, and there are some purebred you know there are some individual purebred dogs that can do that but they are exceptional members of that breed um and so you may be able to find a jack russell a staffy um uh, i'm blanking right now um what else would we find this little that fast in agility we have papillons i don't know we do we know. they're not that fast in flyball, they don't quite um, have the power and that's why the agility conversation is a little different um Shelties and Papillons and, and, um, you know, your traditional fast agility dogs, um, in agility, there's a lot more variable. There's, you know, each course is different. The path that dogs take can be different in flyball, It's really the same. And so it comes down to a much tighter margin of speed. It's really hundreds that we're looking at, um, in a difference of speed. Um, and, uh, the traditionally, um, Dominant small agility dogs, Papillons, Shelties, especially just don't seem to have the um, the power to to run quite that fast in flyball, at least quite as fast as a small mix can run.
0: That's interesting. I always wondered why so many of the sport mixes out there seem to be. Everyone really seems to aim for flyball for them.
1: You mean that's where they're getting the? That's where they're getting their dogs, or that's what they're doing with them? Is that
0: that's what they're doing with them? It seems that mm-hmm. almost all of them do flyball, and that just it. Feels like such a big part of the sport mix community. Not the whole thing, it definitely is.
1: But yeah, well, and also because in the quest to breed this small dog, not all of them end up small. And so, so Uh there's, but those dogs that are not necessarily height dogs are still really good flyball dogs. Um, they still have the temperament and the genetics and the build to be great flyball dogs. And so, um, they, you know, there's a place for them even if they're not height dogs. They're still competitive sport dogs that are great companions. So, um. So you know it's not just the little ones that are valuable or that you see yeah well that's lucky oh lucky <laughs> i mean you make your own <laughs> luck right
0: i think it's by design fair enough so what are those other characteristics that are good for these dogs like that you're aiming for when you're when you're figuring out a new breeding
1: uh well in my own breeding program i, I can't i mean i i'm breeding for myself <laughs> That's why I breed dogs. I breed dogs because I have dogs that I freaking love. I have, you know, there's other dogs out there in the world that I love. And I'm like, you know, if I put that one with this one, that's really what it boils down to is I want dogs for me. Um, I have a circle of friends and family who I love very much and they can have some of them too. Um, uh, And that's, that's pretty much who I'm breeding for. So I am breeding for Flyball, but I'm also, I don't think that the traits that I'm breeding for are exclusive to Flyball. And so I have, bred dogs that are, i am bred a, the first mixed breed to be a two-time national agility champion in AKC, um, Little Sunday with Angie Benacisto. And so she certainly is not a flyball dog, but she's pretty amazing at what she does, which is agility. Um, so the, the traits that we're looking for are the same, sort of no matter what the sport is, mostly I'm looking for temperament, right? I want to breed dogs that are nice pets, that are nice to live with, that their people enjoy, um, and that if everything in the world stops, like is what's happening right now, that we can just enjoy living with these dogs, Um, which is not the case for many working dogs. And I recognize that, but it is what I'm breeding for. I'm breeding for pets. Um, Pets first, uh, pets that also happen to have a really nice sound build that are genetically healthy. and uh, that have the temperament characteristics that are going to make them easy to train for the sports that their people want to do.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's um, definitely an issue I think in the sports world of people not recognizing that it's you're going to have to live with the dog, and people looking First for and forever. Going- the sports right. are
1: so much like the sports are so much what we think about, but in terms of the time that we actually spend, the sports are not very much of the life that you have with your dog. And so having a dog with a nice temperament that you love and appreciate and you like to spend time with them is the most important thing.
0: I think we assume that that's gonna be a given and we think that- mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> That's silly. That I, all I need
0: to worry about is having a dog with enough drive because sure, oh, well, having a dog who- yeah, lets me not gonna work me out well. will, be, will be no problem. Mm.
1: Let me know how it works out for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I try to stay away from that, but it's, it's hard when you're getting a new dog to know what you're going to get. So, and that's, that's the thing, right. About breeding mixes versus breeding mix versus breeding purebreds is that when you breed a purebred, it's a lot easier to predict when you put two dogs together, what size you're going to get, what temperament you're going to get, what the look of the dog is going to be. So do you have any thoughts about that? Like, how do you, how do you handle that?
1: I think that the things that are easily predictable about breeding are more to do with physical traits than temperament. Okay. I think that temperament is predictive of temperament. And so, um, like, it doesn't really matter what breed dogs are. This dog that has a nice temperament and all its littermates and all its relatives that has nice temperament is more likely to have offspring that have nice temperament. That is predictable beyond breed lines. Um, and I think that, um, that there's definitely quite a few structural characteristics that are also predictive of themselves. So I, I think that it comes down to making to knowing the dogs that you're breeding. So I know my Border Collie line really, really well, and it's very predictable. Um, and I try to be very selective about the um, the other dogs that I introduce and to know them and their backgrounds, and then to also just have to draw from the knowledge that I have as a as me and having my 39 years of knowing dogs, you know, to, to know this dog was like this and then it had a baby and this, it was like that. And then it had a cousin that did this and it's, um, you know, it's, it's being a breeder and understanding how things get inherited. And I think that if you're diligent and careful about that and thoughtful about it, um, that it can be, it doesn't have to be as random as, as it may appear on the surface does that make sense? Um, it does. And because, I like that you're talking I, about how folks will tell me, uh, or, you know, I, I try to stay away from Facebook. <laughs> it just gets me in trouble, right? Don't blame you. Um, but every now and then I'll get sucked into a, um, intentional mixed breed debate and they'll be like, you know, you just can't, you get, you you can't know what you're going to get. And I'll post three generations of. Different mixes that all look freaking exactly the same, and guess what? They all act the same too. Um, they come from related lines of border collies, and they're selectively outcrossed to different types of what. But like, there's a, there's consistency in it, and I know that, um, especially what I'm doing, um, which is what I prefer to do, F one crosses, um, which is you know a border collie to a terrier or a border collie to a whippet. Um, and I've done a couple of F two, and I like them as well. But I think that with the F one, I I have a little bit more, uh, there's a greater sample size. I know a lot more dogs of F1 crosses, and I think you can get a bit more predictability and um, consistency from them. Yeah, that's what I understanding the genetics, that's what I would expect. Although Ian and Tui Crooks of Blue Cedar Sport Dogs, they have it down to a science, and they've been um, breeding for a long time, and you can spot a Blue Cedar dog across the room um they don't all look the same but they all have physical similarities and and it's a type and it's once you're once you are in the community and you sort of have seen some of these dogs you'll see a dog and be like oh well that kind of looks like a blue cedar and then you go and you find that oh it is the blue cedar um and they've been breeding i mean they have so many generations of mixes they're not doing f1s anymore at all and yet They've they've been doing it very carefully, and um, they have managed, and they've had a really um, solid sort of vision in mind the entire time, and they've managed to get some remarkable consistency. So, so I think there's a lot we don't understand about breeding mixes um, for sure. And how many how many breeds are in the
0: Blue Cedars? Is that just oh, a couple? Of breeds? oh, there's a, a
1: so they started with F1s, but that was probably um, from their current dogs. That's probably ten generations ago. Um, so border collies, Jack Russell, border terrier, whippet. Um, there's some Staffy in a couple of them, and there were uh, they did a couple of um, breedings that had Malinois in them, but those have kind of been phased out.
0: Yeah, that's it's so interesting to me that people are starting to breed these mixy mixes and having really good results. It's something that I feel like a couple of decades ago we wouldn't have done. Have you
1: looked at the Blue Cedar website at all?
0: I've heard of them, and I think I did go look at their website briefly, and was like, "Oh, this is really cool." It is, but uh, yeah,
1: yeah, they're very transparent, um, which I like, and I, I, I recommend them for people that I, I, they breed more than I do. And so, if I don't have a litter coming up, and somebody's asking, I've sent many people to Blue Cedar, and always been tickled with the dogs that my friends brought home. Um, they do a great job, and they've really been doing it for a long time, and, and they've they've kind of turned it into a bit of an art and a science, uh, in my opinion
0: yeah it's so well so and what are the, some of the
1: challenges that you encounter as you try to do some similar stuff well i've been lucky enough with my own dogs and with the breedings i've been able to do to have some um pretty extraordinary stud dogs that i was able to use um as far as breeding mixes uh the first litter of mixed breeds we bred actually the stud dog was a, a jack russell owned by ian and Tui crooks in blue cedar um his name is tex I chose him because a teammate of mine had a border jack offspring from him. I was like, well, here's a nice jack russell. I've got a border collie. I really want to make border jacks. Um, I shipped shipped my dog, Vada Bang, to them. Um, She came home and had five amazing border jack puppies in 2008. Um, And I think that the real challenge with breeding F1 mixes, at least, is finding great non-border collie studs. Uh, And so I was really thrilled with our text puppies. Unfortunately, we had um, a puppy who was um, unilaterally deaf. Um, I'm sorry, bilaterally deaf. That means both sides, right? Correct. Yeah, bilaterally deaf. Um, and so we didn't use text again. And that litter was all spayed. They were all girls. So they were all spayed. Um, but as far as temperament, working ability, every other health aspect, they were just amazing dogs. Um, and then I was lucky enough to have access to Topper, Gail Mirabella's rat terrier. Um, Gail and I, Gail is a Frisbee person, um, from back in the day, uh, that we were, we were really good friends when I lived in Pennsylvania. She lived in Connecticut. Um, and she had this great little rat terrier. She, she wasn't a terrier person. She had Aussies and Border Collies and she got this little dog and he was just amazing. His name is Topper the Showstopper. Um, and Gail performed in Ringling Brothers with him and traveled all over the world. And he's just this cool little dog. And she approached me and said, I want to breed Topper to a Border Collie. And I was like, Border Collie and Rat Terrier? Who would do that? Um, <laughs> I did. And I was like, I mean, I don't know, Gail, are you really? Uh, uh, okay, so so we did. And um, those dogs were incredible. And uh, I was lucky enough to then I bred Topper to Bang and then I was um, I bred him to Bang's daughter Glee twice, and the Topper puppies were just amazing. Um, and so finding a uh, a purebred terrier that has all the traits that I want and is owned by somebody that's willing to do a mixed breed breeding is definitely the biggest challenge, um, because um, most people still have a very negative feeling about it. Yeah, that's
0: one of the things I'm hoping that the functional breeding group can try to address, putting people together to to make some of these pairings. It's so frustrating, not just for sport mixed breeders, but for all kinds of stuff that, you know, there's outcross for health and stuff sure. like that. That it's so frustrating that people aren't willing to to contribute. <sighs>
1: And I I understand it from their perspective. I think that it is about education and about communication and, and teaching people that those of us that are doing these breedings are doing it thoughtfully and we're using best breeding practices and our homes are screened and we're providing support for life. And we, we do all the things that they do. We're just breeding mixes.
0: Right. Well, so why don't you talk a little bit about some of that stuff that you do? So if you're putting together a breeding, what are the steps for you?
1: Um, I don't really understand the question.
0: Yeah. Well, all the stuff that you mentioned. So, um, health screening.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, so any dog that I intend to breed, I'm going to, um, do OFA hips and shoulders and, um, elbows. Um, I haven't done any shoulders yet. I only learned that that was a thing recently. I didn't know that OFA did shoulders, but I, I now will be doing those as well. Um, and I do a, a an OFA eye exam. Yearly for any dogs that are going to be bred, and I'm going to do a genetic panel um, screening for, um, you know, be either being infected or being a carrier for for all the diseases that are prevalent in that breed. Um, and then I'm also going to I'm also going to bear test to make sure that my breeding stock can hear. Um, and that's all the things we do, right? We do hips and eyes and yeah, yeah That those are all the things. Yeah, that's pretty much the um, whole for, body for thing. anything that's got whippet in it. You've got to do um, echocardiograms to do a, a heart a heart test, um, but just so you know, knowing your breeds and doing the health or the uh, breed appropriate okay. things for them.
0: Yeah, and so and then there's the stuff that you can't test for, but you have to know the lines for, right? Like
1: uh, epilepsy. Oh my god, epilepsy is the worst. It is, <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone likes it. <laughs> it is ubiquitous. It is. I mean, it is in every border collie line, unfortunately. Yeah. Um And one of the, it, it's not a straight up form of inheritance, like. We still don't really know how it's inherited. Right. So that makes it complicated. Um, and also there's some dogs that don't start seizing until they're like five, right? And then there's sometimes there's dogs that are related to them that have been bred or even that dog itself. Um, so the health problem that doesn't manifest until later in life, it's it's always challenging to try to, um, you know put, not breed dogs that are affected or, or dogs that are closely related to dogs who are affected. Um, epilepsy is another tricky one because the, you know, the manifestation of epilepsy is seizing, but there's more than one reason for dogs to seize. So a seizing dog doesn't necessarily mean an epileptic dog. And then you've got, you've got owner issues, right. Um, and, uh, it can get complicated, um, but epilepsy is definitely one of the trickiest ones to try to, um, to try to be a responsible breeder and not not breed dogs that are affected with it. I've been lucky myself, I will say lucky. Um, We've, I think we've had two, two affected epileptic dogs that were border collies um, in 23 years of breeding. So I'm, I'm not proud of it, but I'm not hiding it. And I'm, I'm trying to not throw my baby out with the bathwater, which I realize is a a dangerous phrase in dog breeding, but I am doing what I am doing and, you know, take it or
0: leave it. (laughs) It It's not totally reasonable to me. And my hope would be that by mixing border collies with other breeds, you'd see a lot less epilepsy. So is that,
1: has that been the case? I can't say that I could say, (laughs) I can't say that because we don't have a large enough sample size, right? At all, um, but so I, I don't think I have I have any relevant data to that. I think that there's epilepsy present in other breeds as well, so I'm not so sure if it would help. I, I don't I don't feel comfortable making assumptions about that. Fair enough. Fair enough. And or, do you find that for
0: for issues like that, like epilepsy, that it's hard to really know the lines? I mean, do you do you trust that you really know that epilepsy's there?
1: Um that's a very broad question. It is. I'm just trying to Yeah, I get the, think that <laughs> uh, I think that there's always the issue of reporting, right? So right. there are there there are a lot of dogs in our community and um you know a breeding happens and and you may know some of the people that took those puppies, but you might not know the other places that those puppies went, or maybe one puppy went to a pet home and nobody knows who that is. And so, I think that reporting is a is an is an issue there. Of there are, there's probably a lot of underreporting going on um, where we can't really know. I think we do the best with the information that we have, and I'm, you know, I I look forward to there being a time where there's an easier way to track. The inheritance of epilepsy. It, you know, we're—I feel old to say this—but when I started doing dogs and I was competing in flyball, um, there was a popular stud dog who um, named Flash, um, owned by Doug Spuck. Flash Moy of Spuck, great stud dog, produced really nice dogs. Was a carrier of CEA, and so before there was a CEA genetic test, do you know how we used to figure out who was a carrier? used no, to breed pedigree? no no oh, no no. test, breeding, test, test breeding, breeding which is awful right yep. test breeding well I mean they are what they are and they happen thank goodness they don't happen anymore I can say that I never did one and when I learned that they were a thing I was I was kind of shocked um, but a test breeding is where you breed a known carrier to a potential carrier a dog that might be that you know it might be from its pedigree and if you produce puppies affected with CEA then you know that that dog was a carrier I've heard of this in livestock, but I didn't know. It used to be a thing in border collies for sure. And, uh, and so thank, and so I, whenever I sort of start getting like doom and gloom about epilepsy because it is so nebulous, I'm like, you know what? They used to do test readings and that wasn't even that long ago. Um, and we now have a CEA marker we don't have to do that. We just do a genetic screening and it's so great. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah, epilepsy is going to be a tough
0: one for sure. Um, but I, I also like hearing you talk about knowing the lines. I mean, whether or not people are, are fully reporting, um, there, it's still obviously important to really know the, the lines that you're breeding from. And I think that's another misconception that people sometimes have about people who are breeding mixed breed dogs, that you're just taking a dog that looks nice with another dog that looks nice and putting it together. Right, because people know don't do that body.
1: with purebreds all the damn time. <laughs> Anyway, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, I think that the the community of uh, people that own performance mixed breeds is it's it's not a large one, and so um, being a part of that community and um, and being a trusted part of that community and not being the type of person that takes information and then uses it in an unkind way is helpful, right? Because then people are more likely to be open with you. Um, and there's a, you know, a certain type of person that doesn't do that um, and they ruin it for everybody else. Um, If you, if you're out to, and via actions or in, or, you know, either implied or stated, if you're out to discredit somebody by finding information about their dog and spreading it, um, then you're just going to become untrusted and, 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 um, that's going to not, not help the community in the long run. Um, and there's a little bit too much sort of gotcha stuff going on. Well, I mean, I say going on It, it, it's, it's not something that'll ever go away. Um, but, but, um, you know, being having good relationships with the members of your community so that people trust you and they are open with not just the good stuff, but also the bad stuff. Um, and they know that you're asking from a place of wanting to be better. I'm not asking because I want to go tell everybody that you're a shitty breeder. Um, I'm asking because I care. And establishing that um, is essential.
0: Yeah. So let me think. What else were you talking about in terms of uh what you do when you're breeding dogs. You're also breeding practices, about yeah. Finding there's also finding good homes for your dogs.
1: There is well there's um there's having having good homes for your dogs lined up is definitely a thing. Um and giving the owners, you know, making sure that your puppies are paired appropriately with, with owners that, you know, the owners well, and you understand what they want and then understanding your own dogs well enough to match them appropriately so that everybody is happy. So the puppy gets what it needs. And so the new owner gets what it needs, um, really establishing a very personal relationship with all my puppy buyers, um, uh, and, and being an open book, um, to them and, um, Always having an open door to um, to if they're having an issue and they can't keep their puppy anymore, or not that that happens, but you know, best best breeding practices include taking your dogs back, um, having lifelong health guarantees, having support for the for the life of the dog and beyond. Um, and one of the things that I'm happiest about is that I my dogs. I have multi-generations of dogs in, in the same household. Like the, the people that have gotten my, my dogs come back to me for their next dog. And, and that allows us to really have an even deeper relationship. And to me, that's that's a really big part of why I breed. Um, and so selecting good homes um, and having those homes in place um, before, I, I've never had leftover puppies. I just don't have them. Like I have more the homes than I expect to have puppies. Um, that's pretty important to me. Um, <clears throat> Also how the puppies are raised um my my dogs are house dogs they all live here in my house um behind me is my dining room where all the puppies live there's no puppies here right now but um they're in the middle of our life and they are um they have the they have really good enrichment and they have great um medical care and they have great nutrition and they are exposed to all these good things in in healthy ways and so they are They're house trained by the time they leave at eight weeks. Um, they're, they're really well-rounded and well-adjusted little dogs. Um, and that doesn't matter what I'm breeding. Like my border collies, my mixed breeds, it's all the same. They're just, they're great little dogs because I put a lot into them while they're here.
0: Do you have a particular protocol that you use? Do you use like puppy culture or you have just your own thing? I do
1: not. I think the puppy culture is great. Um, most of it is stuff that I already do. Um, So I don't have a specific protocol, but I am extremely involved with my litters and I, um, I am very transparent about what they do and where they live and and what sort of life looks like with them. Um, and I spend a ton of time with them. I am in the puppy pen most of the time that they're here, um, interacting with them, teaching them things, learning things, but also just observing them and getting to know them. Um, and, and, uh, and so there's there's just so much that goes into them, right? They're just my babies. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So and so, how do you find uh, homes for them? I'm guessing it helps that you're involved in sports, so that you can uh, easily find people who are looking
1: for sport dogs. People come to me. I don't find homes. <laughs> yeah. what's <laughs> the way to do it. Like I said, I, I breed for myself, and so um, and and my friends. So the the. If I didn't have a million people asking for them, I would just be breeding for myself and my friends and family. And when folks at dog competitions look around and see dogs that are succeeding, they often will go and ask somebody. They'd like the look of the dog. They think it's a cool looking dog. They say, hey, where would you get that dog? I got it from Quicksilver. And they'll contact me. Um, you know, that's theoretically how it would work. Um, in, in reality, I wish that I had enough dogs to meet that demand. Um, I have some really successful dogs in competition out there right now that I've bred and they're very visible. And and so folks go to their owners and say, where'd you get that really cool little dog? And she's like, oh, I got it from Quicksilver. And they write to me and they say, I'm so-and-so and and I do all this with my dog. And I'm like, you sound like an amazing home, but I have 15 people on the list and the dog's only going to have three puppies. Um, My biggest challenge has actually been meeting that demand. Um, My bitches have small litters and my bitches are competition dogs. So they're not just getting bread all the time. They're also playing their sports. Um, and so I, I have a, I have people that are wait, literally that wait for years. Um, and, and I, under I, I always tell them that if they find another dog before I have a puppy for them, I, there's no hard feelings, um, but um, it can, it can be a, a several years wait. And that's sort of what helps me screen for really good homes too, right? Is if somebody is willing to wait three or four years for the right puppy I know that they're not just some fly by night who's going to flake out on it.
0: Yeah, totally, but that's a it's a hard balancing act. So you only breed
1: when you have a, a spot in your home for yourself. Um, no, that's not true. Um, I, I I mostly mean that when I'm making breeding decisions, it's for dogs that I either want actually do want to keep or would want to keep. Um, Got it. So I, I have done several breedings where I didn't plan to keep a puppy and where I haven't kept a puppy. Um, which is important because there's, the litters are so damn small and I got all these people that want puppies that I love, who I want to give puppies to. It's really challenging.
0: Small because you're breeding small dogs, I guess. You need to breed some labs. I'm
1: not so sure if it's because I'm breeding small dogs. I, I don't know. I, I, my last border collie litter was large, um, but my the, the little girls just haven't been, I don't know, haven't been having big litters, but I don't mind. Um, I kind of like it. I mean, from a giving puppies to everybody that I want to give puppies perspective. It's not great, but from a practical perspective, um, I, we usually only breed once a year. We try to breed like breed the dogs in the winter and then have spring puppies. And then they can be back in shape by Can-Am. That's usually the plan, which is that the Can-Am is our big flyball tournament in October. This year is different. <laughs> uh, is. Cause who knows when we're ever going to do anything again, but we tend to only breed once a year. Occasionally though, we'll breed two bitches at the same time. Um, and have sort of parallel litters so they can be uh, the, the girls in the house will usually all come in season at the same time anyway so it's not a difficult thing to sync up and if I have one litter of three and another litter of two by the time they're four weeks they're combined they're getting to have a slightly larger group to play with I've got all the puppy stuff out already I'm doing all the puppy work and I can do two greetings at once get my girls back in shape at the same time I guess that makes
0: sense. When you first said that, I thought that that sounded totally exhausting.
1: (laughs) Well, having puppies (laughs) is exhausting, but it's just as exhausting for three as it is for six, in my opinion, like in my setup. Um, it's, it's the same amount of trouble pretty much. Um, so I, I, it works for us to just do them at the same time.
0: Yeah. Is is there a, a particular mix that you're mostly
1: breeding right now or is it different every time? It really depends on the, um, the stud dogs that I have available. Um, and so unfortunately, Topper the Showstopper's last litter was a while ago, we tried to breed to him two years ago and he's uh, he is still with us, but his little swimmers weren't up to the job. Um, and uh, so I am currently sort of seeking a new purebred F1s Terrier stud. Um, I um, At the moment I have my two um, mixed breed girls, I've got Alphaba, who's a Border Jack and I have Tuppence who's a Border Border. I plan on breeding both of them, uh, in the next six months, probably to another mix, each of them, um, because that's what's available that I think is going to make the best puppies. Um, so I'm doing an F2 combos with, um, with one of them and then Alphabet to a multi-mix and sort of see what we get.
0: So you have the sires picked out already? I then? do. Yes. Wow. Where'd you find them?
1: Um, I own one and I bred the other. <laughs>
0: Yep. That's the way to do it. Yeah. And so it's, it's gotta be hard then to, you don't want to stick within the same lines too much, right. To, to inbreed. So you have to find something else.
1: Yes. Um, so inbreeding is a word. Line breeding is another, um, (laughs) (laughs) my border collies are, uh, my chatty is line bred. My other border collies were not. I'm breeding two F one crosses, uh, one of them to another F one cross. Um, so I'm breeding my border border to a border rat. They actually are related on their border collie sides. They are not closely related. And it's a um, it's a coefficient of inbreeding that I am comfortable with. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the first time we've done this. We bred Alphaba, who's a border jack, to Match, who is a border rat. We've done that three times. The offspring have been phenomenal. Um, They also are related through the Border Collie line, um, but they're not closely related. Again, it was a COI that I was comfortable with. I think that part of that, though, has been helpful in the predictability aspect of the dogs, right? Um, So uh, I am hoping that the Border Jack, Border Rat, what I got from that, I've done that three times. I'm pretty comfortable with the I'm very comfortable with the offspring that we got. I love them. And I'm pretty comfortable being um, confident about what I can expect from a similar cross. So I've got a my Border Border, who's related to the Border Jack. I'm going to breed her to the same stud, the Border Rat. So it's another F1 to F1 cross um, with similar components. The only difference being the Terrier. Well, the, the Border Collies are different too, but it's the same line of Border Collies. It was a Border Terrier rather than a Jack Russell Terrier um so i'm i'm excited to sort of try doing similar breedings with relatives right um it's one of the things that i've been impressed with blue cedar is that they they keep multiple dogs from litters and multiple dogs in each generation and then they have different options of combining them in different ways um and you know i i know all breeders do that but they've the one they're the ones that have done it as mixed breeders um and uh i'm i'm excited to see what we get Yeah. And so that's,
0: I think that's the really big trade-off is predictability versus genetic diversity, right? Right. That's where it comes down to is that if you have more predictability, you're going to have less diversity. Yes.
1: Which is true of what, no matter what you're breeding. Right. Exactly. Breeding Pekingese for the show ring or lurchers to catch rabbits. It doesn't, it's the same.
0: Exactly. And I feel like in the purebred world, we have sort of one way of going about that. And I, feel like there's not a script written yet like that for the mixed breed world. So I feel like it'd be really valuable if you could talk a little bit about how you balance those two things. Yeah. This may be a question no one has asked you before,
1: so you, but we can feel through it together. Hmm. Okay. Um, the short answer is carefully. That's yeah. how you do it, is carefully. Um, yeah, it's scary. So what are some of the things you're scared of? Well, so, i learned about breeding from um a couple of different people but um one of my greater influences was um some breeders of belgian shepherds um specifically the kennel bois du toe in france and um when i was little i got to go on a trip with some belgian friends um, belgian shepherd friends not friends from belgium we went to france we we Went to the French specialty. We went to a couple of breeders, and um, listening to the breeders talk about what they were doing and why, and and um, was really really interesting, and I think influenced me a lot. Um, and that's obviously for doing, for breeding something that's a very different end product than what I'm breeding now. But it's still the same rules of genetics still still follow through right? And one of the things that was important to me when I learned was about phenotype and genotype, right which are what is actually expressed versus what is is genetic and what's carried um, and the differences between those um, And then also that you know talking about line breeding and um, versus inbreeding because th- that really means the same thing um, but but they're used in different ways uh, and that when you breed dogs that are related that's when you get, that's when you really get consistency. And that is a thing that is very much a purebred dog thing. <laughs> um, you know, I've been, I've been shocked sometimes when I, when I speak to um, breeders of other breeds at how tight a line breeding they will do. Um, mother to father. I mean, um, you know, daughter to father. Um, the, I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, and so it's kind of shocking when you realize how much it is done already. Um, And, and that that really has a lot to do with creating breeds and having this predictability. Um, But that recognizing that when you line breed, you are intensifying and you're doubling up on everything. And that can mean it's great. If there's nothing wrong with the dog, if all you're doubling up on is amazing traits, then it's freaking great. And that's the, that's the allure. Because when you I mean, when everything is firing, right, it's great to have a line bred dog that has all these amazing traits that will produce all these amazing traits. Um, But you get the bad stuff multiplied too, and so you know, if you've got, um, you know, copies of of genes that are defective, now you have two copies of them. And now you can't get rid of it. Um, And uh, if you are line breeding, and you don't know about something that's there, you can easily have your entire line become you know, irrelevant um, in the blink of an eye. If a problem comes up and everything you own is related to that dog, then you need to start from scratch. That's scary. Genetic diversity is where it's at for health. Mm-hmm. So recognizing that you're going to magnify everything about that dog is key. And and so if you if you know as much as possible about what that dog is, both phenotypically and genotypically, you know if you have as much data as you can have um, then you know what you're gonna be doubling up on um and if and if there's nothing bad there then it's not occasionally bad to double up on something um i'm not saying that i'm breeding mothers to um sons but i i might breed a cousin might do it a couple of times so it sounds like that's turned out well for you i mean it has so far i i with this next um generation of dogs, I'll, you know, each, each time I do a line breeding, I want to make sure that those offspring are not line bred, right? That those offspring, if they're bred, they're outcrossed. Um, but I think that it is something that can be carefully, carefully executed well.
0: Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. The, the alternative. Yeah. So remind me the next two breedings that you're talking about doing are actually going to be F twos. Um, we're
1: gonna be breeding Alphabet to Pac-Man and uh, Tuppence to Match.
0: So what kinds of dogs are you hoping to get out of there? And
1: I'm hoping to get dogs who are, who are small, so under 16 inches at the Withers. Um, I want dogs that have wonderful temperaments, that are not fearful, that are not aggressive, get along with other dogs. They're sociable with people um, and that are have the characteristics that make them easy to train.
0: Yeah, and so we've talked a lot about physical health, but behavioral health is super important too, right? It is think it's more important. So, how have and you felt about? It's possible to test for. <laughs> 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 I'm going
1: to send off my temperament screening. See what kind of temperament my dog has.
0: Yeah, that'd be nice, great, <laughs> right? So, um, so tell me about what kinds of puppies you get. Like, do you have any stories, or what do you hear back from your puppy owners? Or you own a bunch of them, so.
1: Uh...
0: Are their personalities similar to each other? Or oh they... my god,
1: yes! <laughs> they're ridiculously similar. Um, yeah, they, that's interesting. They have they have a lot of similar traits. Um, you know, they're all individuals, but uh, but there's there's things that they all do that's quite adorable and charming. <laughs> Perhaps some some traits less charming than others. Um, my dogs do have a like they're known for just the most piercing bark like a horrible, like needle in your ear, all the way into your brain. Um, when they're waiting their turn they want to go somewhere. So like that, I'll tell you what, if I could get fronts, like I get that bark, (laughs) I would be the best breeder ever. Um, that bark is strong. It doesn't matter, The it carries through all the lines it's there. Um, but that's just something silly. I live with a dog like that.
0: And I sometimes want to kill him. Uh, we're, we're working on understanding that the bark is not the way to get what you want.
1: Right. Right.
0: What else could I ask you? We could start wrapping up, but what do you, so what do you, let's talk about the future. What, what would you see for the future? Let's see in terms of society. So you've talked a lot about how hard it is to get the stud dogs that you want.
1: Um, I would like to see a little bit more understanding and, um, um, you know, maybe positive things from the greater dog community, from the purebred dog community. Um, you know, I have a lot of crossover just in my own life of where I, I have professional interactions with folks that are in the purebred dog world and perhaps hadn't been exposed to intentional mixes before. And I feel like I'm kind of, you know a warrior out here on the front lines of teaching people that it's not necessarily the worst. We're not all doodle breeders, but on the other hand, you know what? Doodle breeders are fine too. If they're checking their damn health and they're screening their homes, breed all the doodles you want. Anyway, sorry. Um, but that, that, you know, I think that, that, um, I don't know why it didn't happen with cockapoos though. They've been breeding cockapoos for 20 years and nobody, nobody, uh, got nearly as up in arms as they have with doodles, but, but doodles, really um turned the purebred world like really sour i think on mixed breeds um if you think about it cockapoos are doodles right because oh, they totally are i mean golden doodles labradoodles that are more of like within the last 10 years but cockapoos have been around forever and yeah right and that wasn't a, at which they also are suffering from the worst naming they should be cockadoodles right <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah <laughs> Um, I never really thought about how cockapoo is two bad words put together. It is, Um, but um, I'm I try to be. You know, I have my dogs, I breed my dogs, and and with Quicksilver Canine, where I, um, you know, am doing all of my work, I will often have my litter puppies there, and so my my clients who come in that they're doing agility with their retired show dogs are now exposed to oh these are mixed breed puppies, and so we may not talk about the ethics of mixed breeding, but they're they know me, they like me, they can see there, you know, my puppies, there they are with their little tunnel and their little baby pool that's got chips, and they watch them run in there and pee and poop and then come out and wobble on the wobble board. And they see that they've got amazing temperaments and that they're really well brought up and they're nice looking dogs, you know, they're put together well. Um, And so even if we're not having a conversation about it, they're being exposed to it. Um, And even if it's not, you know, I only have puppies once a year. So if I don't have puppies, I have one of my own dogs around and they learn that you know, that what it is and that, oh, I, I did breed it. Um And I think that change comes through that kind of interaction, not so much necessarily from, hey, I'm going to educate you about this because it's fine and you should be fine with it too. It's more like, hey, this is me. These are my dogs. I'm an open book. Um You know, here's all the things that I do. Uh, and, and I, you know, I'm I'm doing a good job as a breeder. It's uh what the breeds that I'm breeding are not purebreds, but I'm using best breeding practices and I'm doing everything that you would say that a, a breeder should do, except for breeding purebred dogs. And the hypocrisy of the purebred dog world really grates to me, right? Because um, there are so many breeders of purebred dogs that don't use best breeding practices. Um, and I don't feel like they are subject to. The same type of criticism as really well-intentioned and not just well-intentioned, well-acting breeders of mixes. Um, you know, it feels it feels uh, unfair, but life is unfair.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's I think that's well said, and I'm hoping that we can start getting the word out there.
1: So I'm very happy that um, AKC has opened up so many. Ways for mixes to compete. Um, I certainly can say that for myself, Sunday, like being a two-time knack champion has been really good for my breeding program. Um, and the fact that she's, you know, she, she's re- her full name, there it is, Quicksilver Cherry on top. So she's a mix, but there's no doubt about where she came from. I appreciate that. Um, and I think that having more well-bred mixes in the dog community and them being good dogs uh, is helpful. Um, but also to try to get more um, more breeders out there doing things with their dogs as well and so that they can be part of the conversation and instead of just the owner of the dog who's out there with their one dog, like, hey, I'm, I'm the breed, come talk to me if you have questions or if you want to know something. Um, most people won't because they're not brave enough, um, but just being exposed to to good stuff is good for them. And if they don't have... Too many negative interactions, maybe they will stop being scared, and they might be willing to interact, and they might have a positive interaction. I like it. There's one thing that we didn't talk about. Do you mind if I? Yeah, if we, can, I we can circle back. Sure. So I think that it's, um, I think it's interesting to also think about and maybe talk about uh, the side of breeding mixed breeds that's more for that we, we say function, but it's for sports. That's a hobby. That's not actual work there are mixed breeds being bred for real work, like stuff that has to get done, um, which I think is really fascinating. Um, And um, there's definitely plenty of mixing breeds that goes on for like livestock guardian dogs, um, uh, herding dogs as well, Um, not necessarily on this coast, but on the West Coast, you know, the McNabb breed was pretty much created by mixing cattle dogs, border collies and Aussies. And um, I think that, Farmers and people who use or uh, people who use dogs as part of their livelihood have been mixing breeds for a lot longer than most of us know, um, because it was for function, probably also people that do terrier stuff, right, um, to get dogs that that did the job that they wanted done. Um, and uh, I, I recently found out about um, somebody who breeds dogs that are um, border collies to greyhounds and borzoi and they hunt wolves in the western united like on ranches um which i think is fascinating um and and somebody who has like a you know 20-year breeding program of breeding this type of dog this type of lurcher um that's big enough and strong enough and has the right type of coat and has the right stamina and can hunt, you know, in a pack or, you know, can do the job that they need done in this specific environment Um, and how adding different breeds and and doing different things with a a mixed breeding program has created a dog that's perfect for that job, Um, for which there is not a purebred sighthound that does it. Um, And and I mean, that's not just me saying it. That's the people that are doing the job, right? Like if there was a purebred dog that did it, they'd, they'd get it. Um, it's not like it's a mixed breed agenda. They're literally breeding for function, um, and so I think that's really interesting that that it's a, it's it's long been a thing that people that that needed their dogs to live have done, right? Mixing breeds. I mean, um, for hundreds of years, people bred lurchers to poach the their their game that they ate. Um, that's a border collie to a sighthound. Well, actually, it's a sighthound to an non sighthound, but in England, it's a border collie for sure. Um, and people have been been breeding functional mixed breeds for a long time, just not within the dog fancy, right? Which is a, a privileged place where those of, us, those of us live that can just do fun things with our dogs, right? Right, we like to think that we are all of dog culture, but there's so much going on out there. So much more. But we also like to call our dogs working dogs. They're, they're not. They're playing. I mean, yeah, I take it really seriously. And I'm like, yeah, we're gonna go to work. My dog's a working dog, but it's not a working, it's not doing a job that's essential. <laughs> it's playing he's not earning money for you. No, he's not earning money for you. And it's not helping anybody's, yeah, it's not helping anybody's livelihood. It's not doing an actual necessary job. It's not keeping your livestock safe. It's not whatever. But um, but I, I was I was speaking to somebody who is a, a sighthound person who was telling me about this breeding program um, for the, um, ranchers in, in Western U S and Canada. And I was like, that is absolutely fascinating. And I bet that many people that are in the mixed breed discussion don't know about that kind of thing. So I think it would be really interesting to try to do, to try to reach out to that. Sort of arm, you know, to, to make functional breeding, not just about hobby ducks, um, because I think there's a lot to, that could probably be learned from those people. A hundred percent.
0: I totally agree right. with you. Um, at one point I asked people on the Facebook group, what kinds of who they would want to see me interview for this podcast. And I got a lot of suggestions for people breeding assistance dogs and guide dogs. So there's that yeah. um, right now there's some work, right? Right, right. <laughs> difficult, difficult, <laughs> work. Uh, but those, that's a great idea. And I didn't actually know about those people breeding lurchers. So that would be fascinating. Yeah. So, if someone wants to come talk to you, where would they where would they get
1: in touch with you? Um, our website is Quicksilver Dogs. I'm on Facebook, Julie Jenkins. Um, you can also Quicksilver Dogs is a Facebook thing that you can message. Um, I'm not great at communicating; I'll admit it. Um, Your husband got right back to me when I messaged. He's the best, Dogs, though. He's the best. Um, I'm always happy to talk about dogs. I tend to be a little bit shut down if somebody wants a dog because I know that I won't be able to give them one right now and that makes me sad. Um, and that's just a personality quirk of mine that if I feel like I'm gonna disappoint somebody, I don't really want to interact with them because then I'll just disappoint them. Does that make any sense? <laughs> that that does. You want to have
0: good interactions. I do, I
1: do. And for people
0: who are local, you do some training. I mean, not not right so at the moment.
1: I teach, yeah, I teach dog training full time at Quicksilver and Julian. North Carolina, um, our website is what the hell? Quicksilvercanine.com. That's it. I was thinking yeah. about the breeding website, which is Quicksilver Quicksilvercanine.com. I teach flyball agility, disc dog, um, and a little bit of everything. Um, I'd I, I say flyball puppy foundation is probably what what is most popular right now. A little bit of
0: everything. And I'm told a lot of people are getting puppies in the time of COVID. So hmm,
1: yes, busy. well, I hope so. I hope that we get to do things again. I, I'm, um, you know, the world is changing and I think that the whole dog sport landscape is going to change just like everything. It'll be very interesting to see sort of where we end up. Yeah. Everything. Yes. Everything will be different. Yeah. More yeah. virtual. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, hopefully not too virtual because I got a lot of money sunk on this. On this 15,000 square foot facility. I really don't want it to sit empty. <laughs> no, fair enough. Like, please let us not just do everything virtually. <laughs> no, I think I think it'll be fine. I think so too. Deep breaths. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to be all right. Yeah.
0: Well, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much. I
1: hope that it was good. I am, um, you know, uh, take what's, what's good.
0: thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Sarah Espinosa Socal. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the Functional Dog Collaborative, check out functionalbreeding.org. Enjoy your dogs.